great things as well, which is a great double. But he was speaking at a conference and uh, someone slipped a note into his hand and he didn't read it till he got out of the building. But here's what it said. I have a friend who is struggling with a very serious brain cancer. His relationship with Jesus is such that a nurse wrote a critical notes on his notes at the end of his bed, which said, Mr. X is inappropriately joyful. The note finished, since then, it has become one of my goals to become inappropriately joyful. And I want to suggest that's a pretty good goal to have, to be inappropriately joyful. Now, that doesn't mean that you laugh at other people's funerals or bad news. But it means that instead of sort of the expectation of the nurse, and no doubt she meant well, here is a man who's dying of a, of a brain cancer. He ought not to be as happy as he is. Something is wrong. Is he mentally ill? No. He simply knows something solid that uh, dwarfs other things. And I want to suggest to you that um, we just look for a few moments at how you can become inappropriately joyful. You might say, no, I'm just not that, that, not that sort of person. For a Christian, that's a silly and inappropriate way to speak. So maybe you've been a Christian for 20 years and then you discover that you're unloving or that you're a gossip and you suddenly discover that God can't stand that misuse of his gifts and, and say, oh, well, I'm just, I'm just a gossip. No, you're just a sinner who needs to repent is what you need to do. And change happens all the way until we die and see him and are totally transformed. So when it comes to joyfulness, um, all of us, I think, can move towards being inappropriately joyful. And I think the verses that we looked at, or we're going to look at now, chose not to read the verses. You're probably thinking, why didn't we read the text, which is Habakkuk chapter 3, particularly verses 17, 18, and 19, which I think will really help us to think about this business of being appropriately joyful, although it may seem inappropriate. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would help us. Father in heaven, we've just confessed that we believe in the Holy Spirit in that wonderful creed. And we do ask that you would pour your Holy Spirit upon us all, that we would hear your voice, we would hear your invitation, and we would move in the direction of following and applying your words to our little lives. We pray for your help now for the glory of your son Jesus. Amen. Now, many of you all know the song. I don't kind of know all of it, but there is a little song uh, built on these verses. But let me read you the, the end of the book of Habakkuk, verse 16. Chapter 3, as we heard, is sort of uh, he begins to call to mind the great deeds God has done, which is a, a very New Testament thing to do, to deliberately force our minds to think about the things that are true that mightn't be slapping you in the face. But then he says this, verse 16, having heard the description of God's power. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation that is invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails... And the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. 
The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on a stringed instrument. There you go. Luckily, we've got a piano here and a violin, but I don't think that's suggesting nothing except stringed instruments, but that was the suggestion for that particular prayer that was to be sung. All right, let's look at this. So you, you know the song, um, Though the fig tree doesn't blossom and there be no fruit on the vine. You didn't I think you're going to be tortured when you came to church, did you? There you go. Uh, and the produce of the olive fail and the fields. Yeah, no food, I've, I've got the tune wrong. Though the flock be cut off from the stall and there be no herd in the stall, yet will I rejoice in the Lord, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That is these verses, wisely put the song. Look it up on YouTube, it's much more pleasant. But I hadn't realised, I only know the, the first and the last part, the middle part of the tune has lost me. Um, but these verses, they do stand alone. There are sometimes we pull a verse out of, the, out of the Bible and when you put it in this context, think, well, I'm not sure if we're using it properly. This does stand on its own. This defiant determination to have inappropriate joy that all around him is utter disaster in a way that I would suggest many of us have never experienced and God willing never will, but we might. And he is called to this, he's calling us and inviting us into this joy. Remember, there's no thing said to you directly but we get to watch a godly man interacting with God and we'll see later how he moves from despair and perplexity and complaint to joyful trust. But it's helpful for us to remember that joy, which is not the same thing as happiness, they're closely related. Happiness apparently comes from the same origin as the word happenstance or accident and happiness is directly related to things that have happened to you things that are happening close to you. It's shallower, but it's still a lovely thing to enjoy, whereas joy is deeper. It's more like a deep ocean current. It, it's, a, it's partly an attitude. It's a conviction that in the end, things in my life are part, of a are part of a comedy, although it looks often like a tragedy. It's that conviction, that sense of, as we sing sometimes in that old hymn, it is well, it is well with my soul even as he confronts various moments of terrible suffering which that man had. The second are the fruits of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes into our lives as he does when, when we're coming to faith in Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. Another four. It's the second thing that the Holy Spirit mentions when he mentions the fruit that he comes to produce. Jesus speaks about sharing his joy with us that we can be joyful as he was. And 1 Peter 1 has got that statement which continues to haunt me about ordinary everyday Christians who are suffering. The Christians in 1 Peter are enduring what he calls a fiery trial. And he speaks about, in this you rejoice with a joy full of glory and inexpressible. There's an expectation that a half-healthy Christian who knows Jesus and trusts in the promises of God will be a person of joy and sometimes inappropriate joy. I do recall when um, a, a, a church I served at some time ago in Sydney at, at Broadway burnt down um, and I had a perfect alibi so I can't be out for that and, um, uh, and that, that Sunday we had church just up the road in the Great Hall at Sydney University which, which actually looked a bit similar to the inside of the and people came from around and it was, it was newsworthy because we discovered without, we didn't know it that 
Barney's was probably the best known and most popular church because of its history uh, with the signs and other things like that. Anyhow, a few journalists came. Also, it was, it was a terrific fire. Churches burn well. Not this one. This one wouldn't, so don't try this one. But old, older churches burn well. Lots of wood, lots of air. And this journalist waited because I thought, I'm not talking to you before the service. You know, they think they're the most important people in the world. But I said, you have to wait till after we've done the business, then we'll talk to you. And he said, I did notice that your people are very stoical. I said, well, actually not my people, they're his people. But I said, not. I said, what do you mean by stoical? Well, he said, they've just lost a building that they obviously had a lot of sort of uh, warmth towards, you know, where many of them had met God and many of them had got married there and many of them had buried parents or even husbands or wives there. So you do get the sort of sense of place matters. It's like the castle. And... Um, uh, he said, they're, they're very stoical. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, they're, they're, trying, they're trying to put a bright face on. I said, is it, is it just possible that they actually are joyful? That they do know that God will bring good out of this? We've got no idea and we're not all that happy about it happening. But we know that God has promised that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and serve him. So I said, they're not putting on a brave face, always look on the bright side of life, that sort of thing. But they actually know that in the midst of the difficulty, God will do good things. They weren't being stoical. They were just enjoying the high calling of the ordinary Christian, which is to be joyful even in moments that are dark in other ways. Well, let's have a look at particularly at what he says and why this is such a striking verse. Because it's written from an agricultural culture. We're not, or many of us don't, we hardly know that, you know, what it's like to live in a culture where you, you live off what you grow. But listen to what it says. Though the fig tree doesn't blossom or bud, there's no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails. Now, figs, grapes and olives are magnificent parts of God's creation. I think figs are God's lollies. I think he makes them and dates for those who have a sweet tooth. They're, they're a beautiful luxury. Olive oil or olives and um, the grapes the Bible says specifically that God gives wine and oil for the face to make our hearts sing and our faces shine. They're seen to be gifts from God. But I think we could put them in the category of luxury, couldn't we? I mean, if someone said, okay, no more figs ever, well, I think we could adjust to that after some counselling. Or if someone said no more wine, you might need more counselling, depends on how you live. Um, but, or olive oil. Which, which was used for all sorts of things in that culture, including moistening the skin in a very hot, dry culture. Now, all those three things would be a real pest, wouldn't it? To have no wine, no olive oil, no figs, nothing, nothing on the trees. But then it gets serious. Listen to this next part. For Well, even if this happened in Australia, we'd be in trouble, even us here in the city. Though the fields produce no food. You got that? the barley or the wheat, the basic crop that was the staff of life. Because right? most of those cultures ate lots of bread type stuff and tiny bits of meat on special occasions. Your fields produce how much? Nothing. Imagine what that's like, my friends. Imagine if there was no food coming. Right? I'm dying of starvation, people say, if they haven't had a meal in four or five hours, you know. But you can die, and it's not a pleasant way to die, to die of starvation. 
as we know, with some of the things that have been happening in Africa, at times families eat bark off trees. Uh, it doesn't do the internal parts much good, uh, but it is so important to get that horrible gnawing hunger out of your system. Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, there's no grapes in the vine, the olive tree fails, and the fields produce no crop. Okay, well, let's have a look at the meat situation. There's no sheep in the sheepfold, none. Not just a scrawny one or a really old one. And no cattle in the stall. There's no meat. There's no grain. There's nothing. This is utter tragic devastation, isn't it? This is the most appalling situation that I think, thank God, most of us, although we, there are extraordinary stories in people's background in church, some of you may have lived in times of, of utter starvation. Whereas touch and go if you were going to live simply because you didn't have food. This is like waking up and finding yourself in Hiroshima. Right? There's just <laughs> devastation. How is it possible to survive? There's every reason for someone to, be, to go to God in lament, uh, in saying, God, what, what on earth are you doing? Uh, that's the only appropriate response we would think. Anything else would be seen as some sort of um, denial refusal to face but you know he's saying if this is all happening and friends this is exactly what happened in Israel very soon because when the Babylonians came through an awful lot of starvation happens not just in drought but when there's drought and war because often the war that's going on in some of the countries that where there's terrible starvation stops us getting the aid that we could from those who at the moment their crops are doing all right but Israel was going to go through this where they would be eating unthinkable things to try and stave off starvation. This was coming when Babylon came as they, as they were on their way. So this is a, a joy in a time of deadly famine. Where do they find their joy? Uh, yet will I rejoice in the government aid and I will be joyful in World Vision's help that's coming, I hope. Okay, I'm just being silly, aren't I? Uh, yet I'll rejoice in what? Right? You can imagine this guy standing in the... It, it's, it's completely barren... There's the skulls of dead animals perhaps that have died because there was no food for them and there's not enough water, etc. And they're standing in this scene of like utter appalling devastation. Yet he will rejoice in the Lord. He will be joyful in God my Saviour. I'm sure you can see what, a, what an extraordinary response this is. He's not going to be joyful in what's happening to him or to his family but he will rejoice in the Lord. Now, he could, he could just curse God and die, which was the advice given to Job when, Job when Job's fate turned from being a wealthy, blessed man with a lovely family, etc., in friendship with God, to, to losing seemingly everything. And the advice of one nearest and dearest to him was, curse God and die. Get over this nonsense about trusting God. It's clearly not worth it. But he says, no, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And the two words joy and rejoicing here, in the, they're, they're, there's about four or five words that the, that the Hebrew uses to express joy. And one of them here has the sense of um, sort of singing sort of joyfulness. And the other one has a sense of the body moving sort of joyfulness. So it's sort of a singing, dancing, happiness. It's the sort of things I saw a few people doing, you know, at the football on Friday uh, when the Brumbies are winning. Um, you know, it's just, it's just you just... Some of the guys were actually singing. It was quite extraordinary because Australians are not a singing culture. Singing and dancing, joy. 
that there's something about God that in the midst of utter devastation, you can go to him and say, you dirty rat, I'm blaming you for this. Um, Or you can know, know him as Habakkuk does and find in the midst of the horror, joy and peace that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So um, I do remember when I was a youth minister, there was a, a young woman in year 12 who'd been going out with this guy Dave for ages. And it was a, you know, that sort of intense um, uh, adolescent affection. And, and they broke up. And she was utterly shattered. I mean, you know, and it's easy for old people to say, oh, you know, she's happily married now, blah, blah, blah. But uh, and I remember sharing with her Romans 8, you know. Carolyn, God works all things for the, for the good of those who love him. Right? All things. Not most things. All things is what the promise says. And she said, I just can't believe that now. I said, Carolyn, it's written for now. It's not written for times when you can easily believe it, when you can read it off your circumstances, which we so often do, don't we? We think, if life's going well, God must be doing well for me. If life's going badly, like I'm being crucified or something like that, life, you know, God must be cranky with me. But I remember I've never been able to get out of my head what a tragedy it was for her. She had a vague, sort of a juvenile, sort of Christian faith. But she just wouldn't believe that this would work. It's not that it would stop her crying, but it would give her, in the midst of her sadness as she recovered from it, a peace and a stability ballast in the keel. I remember some years ago coming to, I must have read it somewhere because I'm not an original thinker, the, the fact that as Christians we live, as it were, on Easter Saturday. Right? And I find this helpful. And I was sharing it with friends and I said, I'm surprised I haven't heard a sermon on this. And said, well, I've just read a book about it. So, you know, I thought it was a new thought. It's, a, it's an ancient thought about Easter or what, what's called Holy Saturday. See, we live in a situation like the disciples were on Easter Saturday. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen. And he outlines the the betrayal, the handing over to the Romans, the whipping, the spitting, the mocking, the crucifixion, the death. And on the third day, I'll rise. Now, they didn't believe any of the first part, so they didn't even think about the second part. How can someone so powerful who can calm a storm, who can raise up a dead man, be overwhelmed by someone as pathetic as the whole Roman army? He's got, obviously got divine power. They didn't take it in. They didn't take his word seriously. So when it all happened, they all collapsed, ran away, betrayed him. They, just, they all performed appallingly. And on Easter Saturday, they're ashamed. But worse than that, they're shattered because the, they thought God was going to take them here. They thought, or is that beautiful line in uh, Luke 24, we had hoped. They had this hope that Jesus was going to bring in the kingdom of God and overthrow evil. We had hoped, but now he's been crucified. So they're on Easter Saturday. They're hiding behind locked doors. Why? Because what the Romans did is what most governments do. You kill the main troublemaker, then you you wipe out his lieutenants. So they were waiting for the knock on the door from the Romans to get them. That was what the Romans normally did. They're hiding. They're shattered. They're ashamed and hopeless. Yet they had a promise from Jesus that he gave quite a lot of times that on the third day I will will be raised. 
They could have been sitting there on Saturday saying, all right, we didn't do too well, that wasn't our best performance on Friday, but it's happened exactly as he said, and now we're on day two, buried on day one, day two, we've just got to wait now, getting excited. They could have been sort of doing any, whatever you do to prepare when you're going to meet someone who's risen from the dead. But they didn't. But the next day, they were going to be joyful out of their heads that Jesus Christ had actually conquered death and came in and said, you know, touch and see, you got some food, I'll eat just to prove I'm not a ghost. Right? They could have been really excited, but they were just shattered. Can I suggest, brothers and sisters, that's where we often live, isn't it? We've witnessed the death of some of our quite legitimate dreams and hopes, perhaps our financial hopes, perhaps our health hopes, perhaps our family hopes and our hopes for our children. And it's turned into a messy nightmare. And we're thinking, I thought you loved us, God. I thought you made promises, something about abundant life and stuff like that. And we're in despair, perhaps even shaking our fist at God. You will know people, friends, who've walked away from God or meet people who say, I cannot believe in a God who lets. Now, sometimes they bring up a suffering that you can really understand. But I remember talking to a very intelligent man uh, across at Hurstville Grove at this barbecue. And he said, I I don't believe in God. I said, when did you make that decision? He said, oh, about 12, 13. I said, oh, what, what convinced you that there was no God? He said, my father died. I said, oh, okay, well, that, yeah, that is pretty hard for a kid when his dad dies. Yeah, and then we'd be talking. And I said, then I just out of the blue, I thought, how old was your dad? 79, I think he said. Obviously, his father, you know, he'd had him when he was quite old. Um, I said, at what age would it have been okay for your dad to die, do you think? You know, 79 is obviously way too young. If he died at 100, would, would you still be saying, I can't believe in a God to let my dad die? I mean, we, we are often not thinking as clearly as we think. And to his credit, the man said, yeah, I suppose, I suppose 79's okay, isn't it? I said, well, it's far above the worldwide average. But I was, trying to be, I was, but I was gentler uh, in the way that I said it to him. But you see, we are in this situation. We live on Easter Saturday. We can see the catastrophe often. We're about to see where it's going, that that was actually the most magnificent thing God ever did on the planet. It's the worst thing humans ever did. In the middle of it, and this is the way God works, is the most beautiful thing God has ever done. The great proof of his love for you is that he lets his son die like that for you to deal with your sin and guilt. So they'll learn in the end what it really means. But at the moment, all they can see is catastrophe. They're within 24 hours of unspeakable joy. But they're in utter despair and fear and shame. And I want to say to you, we live on Easter Saturday. Now, we don't, in a sense, because we know that he's risen. But often we can see disasters and we can't see where God is taking us. And we sometimes try to guess. And frankly, I've given up on that. I've watched friends try to make sense of people's suffering. So maybe God's doing this. Yeah, maybe he is. But maybe you haven't got the faintest clue what God is doing. His ways are not our ways. They're higher and better. It's better just to go, well, the God whose son dies for me, I think I can trust him. In fact, I think it's absurd not to trust him. He's obviously shown how much he loves me and how weird his ways are. So this guy has got that sort of joy, joy in deadly times. He will rejoice. He doesn't know it. It doesn't mean that his stomach isn't hurting and it's painful watching his children perhaps die. But he will not give up on the fact that God is the God who is the saviour. 
That's what he says. I will rejoice. The sovereign Lord is my strength. I will be joyful in God my saviour. The one who has done all sorts of things. And that's what he recounts there. The great saving act of God in chapter 3 when he rescued the slave people after hundreds of years and they were being genocided, God saves them. So there are times of joy and it's to do with our knowing of God. We've got to lift up our eyes and think, right, that's where joy is found. We're so blessed in this country, we can often think, oh, God really does love me because life's gone well. And I've shared this once before. I've had some gentle arguments on Facebook. They can happen sometimes. Where a friend wrote... In fact, I first had the conversation offline just so it wasn't too embarrassing. They wrote about some weekend, which had gone really well. They'd had a kid's party out in the park and the weather was perfect and blah, blah, blah. And they, then they finish up by saying, isn't God good? Now, I, I know what they're saying. They're acknowledging that this, this is a gift. And I said, really? I said, I think I know what you're saying and it's good to give credit there. But if God had rained on your five-year-old's birthday party, would you have to say, isn't God evil? See, if, if, we, if we only sort of turn and acknowledge the goodness of God when things go according to my script, and some of our scripts are very demanding, they're first world scripts, uh, then we're, accident, we are, we're, trying, we're thinking we can read God's character and his attitude to me off my circumstances. You can't. You're a fool if you do that. You've learned nothing from the scriptures. Very often the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. That's, that's, a common, that's a common stance in the way that the Bible speaks. We live on Easter Saturday. Well, let's have a look at this. Um, I think part of the purpose of the book is, is to, to walk the Habakkuk road in a sense. If you want to know more joy and healthier, deep joy and genuine joy in the midst of terrible crisis, do what Habakkuk did. He takes to God his complaint. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not care? Why do you make, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? The first step in moving from confusion and sometimes angry confusion, um, which is part of the emotional um, movement often, is to engage in honest dialogue with God. He can take it. Right? Um, take, take into your mouth Psalm 73 or Psalm 22 that Jesus does from the cross. Right? Laments are so helpful in this, but have an honest dialogue with God. You don't have to stamp your foot, etc., but if, he can cope with that if you're having a tantrum. Um, Habakkuk is quite calm, but he's quite blunt, isn't he? And then God gives him the answer, as we heard, it's okay, the Babylonians are coming. Then he says, but Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my holy one. I think the way that he keeps um, cluttering up the sentence with more names for God, he's, he, he's obviously a bit fired up. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my holy one, you'll never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. But your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. So you know, even when God begins to give him a bit of an answer, he's not happy with the answer. And he says, how can you use people as evil and the Babylonians were as that so that the thing is I think to engage in we had a couple um, in church on Sunday uh, a young guy and um, 
with a young woman sitting next to him, and he asked a question, and we have uh, Q and answer, uh, question answered often at the evening service, and he asked a question which he told me afterwards was, was on behalf of the girl sitting with him. So he came out and talked to me, and, and he, he's a Roman Catholic, she's a Buddhist. I don't know exactly how it works, but here they were at St. Matt's, and they come sometimes, which is great. And it was actually her question, and the question was this, is it okay to ask God questions? And I said, no, it's a good question. Because in some religious traditions, certainly in Islam, in, in, in ordinary classical, you are not allowed to ask Allah questions. Allah knows. In fact, when some Islamic scholars I've read read Jesus' words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They say that is a blasphemy that Jesus would never have said that Christians would in his mouth. I said, well, actually, he's quoting from David, who you also think is a prophet. You know, so it's, but there's no place for that sort of energetic dialogue that there is within Judaism and Christianity. But to be able to say, yes, of course it's appropriate sometimes to have this honest, painful dialogue with God. That's the first thing. Do that. Don't just mumble away with your, your doubts and perhaps share your complaints with others, but not take it to God. That's the first thing which, which Habakkuk will take us through. Then he says in chapter 2, he's still not, he's still not happy with God's answer yet. He says, I will, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and, and, and what answer I am to give to the complainant. So he says, okay, I'm not happy with this so far. I've, I've told God that I'm wrestling with this. I will wait and see what he says. Right. So the first thing is to be honest with God. The second thing is to make the time to listen to God. Right. That is not the same. That is not a question of going out to a mountain and looking across and just saying, speak to me. He may do that, rarely, hardly ever. And most of the times I meet people who think that's happened, there's very little connection between the God of the scriptures and that voice that they heard. But he can do what he likes. But he, you, you get the answer quite clearly in the next verse. Verse 2, chapter 2. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that Herod may run with it. You think scripture, you think this is our idea? It's very clear in the Bible that's his idea. He speaks and he acts and he gets people to write it down. Here in Habakkuk he says, write down the revelation and then he gives the revelation in chapter 2 and thank God Habakkuk did what he was told and he wrote it down. It's a series of five woes, five things of judgment that God will do against. Well, it's clearly against Babylon, but the great thing is he doesn't say the rotten Babylonians. He says people who extort the poor, people who use violence, people who use alcohol to get their way with people. He goes through five different sorts of people, which the Babylonians certainly were, and he asks them to come and listen. So be honest. Secondly, make time to listen to the scriptures. If there's ever a time when you should be reading your Bible, it's when you're feeling that life has mistreated you and you think God has forgotten you. And that's one of the reasons why we come to church. I am, I'm not surprised, but I'm still disappointed when seemingly mature Christians go through a hard time and stop coming to church. That is exactly, it's like someone saying, I'm so sick, when I get a bit better, I'll go to the emergency you know, thing at the hospital. No, 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 go when you're fully sick. But I don't feel like travelling. Get a taxi. Get, a, get to where sick people should be. If you need to hear the voice of God, the beauty of coming to church is you get to come, and if it's a half-decent sort of sensible real church, you'll get a sermon, which will go far too long. We all know that. But it will be the result of hours and hours and hours of work and research. 
you, you'll get music prepared by people who've spent quite a while practising and the songs are often very carefully chosen. They're not just thrown together willy-nilly. So what you can get when you come to a half-decent church, and I think St Matt's well, let's put ourselves at least there, half-decent church for now, but um, you can rate it later on if you like. But... Um, but what we do is we're silly. Instead of doing what, what Habakkuk, he doesn't say, no, you haven't given me the answer I like. I'm going to go to the pub and get drunk and see what happens. No, you idiot. He says, I'm going to stand on the wall and listen. And God speaks to him because he is a prophet in a way that we're not. That's the thing to do, to read the scriptures. Ask friends, what should I read? There are scriptures that are ideal for times when you're desperate. I've mentioned Psalm 73. It's such a good one. And it follows almost exactly the same logic as Habakkuk does. Thirdly, he says in chapter 3, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. So what he does is he goes through then and gives about 13 or 14 verses recounting the great act when God saved his people from slavery. And it's, all done. it's a poetic retelling of the Exodus story. So he remembers the great deeds of God. He's got the promises of coming judgment in chapter 2 and then he remembers the way in which God has saved in the past. It's exactly what Christians do. When do we do that really clearly? With the Lord's Supper. What does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. You've got, you've got to discipline your brain and say, now all I can see is the horror and the suffering. No, 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 push that out and realise there's a whole lot of other stuff that's true and we need to take in at this moment to remember his great deeds for us, what Christ has done. I um, shared with you on my first Sunday here, which, which you'll remember eight, eight and a half years ago, um, from Psalm 23. And I told a story then of a, a, a beautiful thing, and some of you may have forgotten it, and some of you mightn't have been there, so I'll share it again. A young man called Tim, he was from New Zealand, but apart from that, he was a very fine young man. And uh, he came across to uh, Sydney. He got the, the dream job working with Walt Disney that he wanted, that he could use all his artistic skills, beautiful guitarist. Um, a real heart for the poor and a real heart for those who didn't know Jesus. Just a spectacular young man, about 24, 25 years of age. Went out with friends on a Friday, had a headache as he went home. Headache didn't go until Sunday, so he took him, just walked, very short walk down at St Vincent's Hospital, a few tests, a few weeks, a huge brain cancer in his head. Comple inoperable, he couldn't do anything. So we were all a bit stunned with this wonderful young man, a young Christian man dying, and you think, man, this guy could have, could have been a world changer, you know. And his friends from his Bible said he would visit him regularly. And they got to the point where all Tim could do was you'd say A, B, C, D. And he'd squeeze your hand when you got to the letter. And he'd spell out words like that because he just had lost the ability to speak. And then he, the kids, they weren't kids, they were young men. They came round to our place uh, after they'd been to see Tim one night. Because what he'd spelt out to them was, because he knew he was going to die and they knew he had a couple of days left and that was all. Um, and he, he typed out on their hand, I am so excited. And they were just... Because he was a guy, I mean, this is not what he wanted. Uh, and he went through periods of saying, God, what on earth are you doing? You know, um, Couldn't I be more use alive? Uh, and that's what we were all thinking. But he, when he understood, okay, this is God's will, so I'm dying. Of a, you know, I am so excited because he knew the promises of God. He knew he was going home. Right? He would dwell in the Father's house forever. 
And this is what it is, to, to know the promises of God and to know that the God we're dealing with is the God who has nail marks in his hands, but who has conquered death. We can trust him. He deserves your trust. And ultimately, it does, it does you nothing but good to trust him. Because you can sit there on Easter Saturday life, which is where we are, sad and depressed, or you can believe the promise that something amazing is going to happen tomorrow because we have the promise of God. This isn't just wishful thinking. This is building our life on the word of God, the promises that he has given. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. So I want to invite you to join the inordinately joyful team as an individual and, and for us as a church to be one that is inordinately joyful. Even in the midst of all sorts of problems and difficulties and things that we really wish weren't happening, whenever they come to us, I think, okay, if this guy has learnt of God even before the death of Jesus, that when the fig tree doesn't blossom, there's no fruit on the vine, and the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. Holy Father, we do pray and thank you that you are quick to forgive and we choose not to trust you. And when things do not go as they should or as we certainly wish that they did. Father, help us to be men and women who are growing inappropriately joyful with our hopes and joys anchored in you, your promises, your goodness, the, the revelation of your character in the death of your son and his great triumph over death, that we would be men and women of hope based on promise and we would know not only peace but joy and so in, in that way honour you and also do ourselves some good. We pray that you would keep changing us, Father, until we see you as you are. In Jesus' name, amen.